you know, I, I play a lot of John Madden football on my PlayStation 4. I have never in my life played as the Kansas City Chiefs. I would rather set myself on fire than play as the Kansas City Chiefs. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is what might be called the Deviate Super Bowl Special, a topic I've decided to tackle in part because my long-suffering Kansas City Chiefs are finally in the big game this year, but also because I've had a long-time travel tradition of watching the Super Bowl wherever I happen to be in the world, a tradition that's covered 18 cities and 10 countries on four continents over the years, including Korea, Egypt, India, Brazil, Argentina, Namibia, and last year, Sri Lanka. I actually recorded a national public radio piece about this from Thailand 18 years ago, back when I was writing my first book, Vagabonding. I'll play that in a second, since it underscores how earnest I am about this Super Bowl ritual. You know, there are already thousands of hours of podcasts out there about this year's Super Bowl, but I'm not really here to analyze the game, and my knowledge of the Chiefs and their opponent, the San Francisco 49ers, isn't as granular or authoritative as you'll hear elsewhere. Instead, I use this episode to unpack the nature of fandom and how it informs certain rituals in our lives. This is something that could apply to music or movies or even literature, but in my case, it's professional football fandom that speaks to life in general in ways that go beyond football itself. This is something I tried to communicate in my old public radio piece about trying to watch the Super Bowl in Thailand, and I was kind of startled when the host of the show, Diana Nyad, introduced my segment by suggesting that NPR listeners might kind of despise pro football. Here's that old radio segment in its entirety. If you have zero interest in all the Super Bowl hype, you're not alone. Pundits attempting ad nauseum to predict an unpredictable game can get pretty darn tiresome. On the other hand, the Super Bowl is such an American institution at this point. I mean, this is the 36th year of the game that we can surely dredge up a little sympathy for Americans traveling abroad who can't find a way to watch the game. Rolf Potts knows the disenfranchised feeling. He's been in Asia for five years, and he's lived the pain of being in exile without a Super Bowl to watch. I'm asking you to put aside your loathing of all things Super Bowl, if that's where you stand, and try to relate to Rolf and his quest to connect with his memories of home. For some people, missing the Super Bowl might not seem like that big of a deal. But for me, it's not just a sporting event. Like Christmas and the 4th of July, I see Super Bowl Sunday as a sacred and patriotic holiday. Regardless of which teams are playing, the ritual of watching the game is vital to my sense of cultural tradition. This year, since I'm living off the beaten track in southern Thailand, I'm once again faced with the dismal prospect of missing the Super Bowl. What's more, my expat neighbors don't even sympathize. Richard, will you watch the Super Bowl this year? No, I will not watch the Super Bowl. Why not? Don't you like football? No, I really don't like football. Why, why don't you like football? Well, I think it's a rather stupid game. As an American, that sounds a bit like blasphemy. Where I grew up, the NFL was the cultural equivalent of the Greek pantheon. To me, football stars like Joe Montana and Ed Tall Jones were like Zeus and Apollo. But NFL icons just don't mean as much to the other travelers I've met in Thailand. Do you know who Rolf Benerschke is? No. He played for the Chargers in the 70s? He was a kicker? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I don't. He was Norwegian. Rolf. R Rolf. Rolf. What's his last name? Benerschke? <laughs> is that Norwegian last name? 
<laughs> to be honest, my interest in football stars peaked out when I was a kid. But just as you don't have to be a devout Christian to love Christmas, I'm always a faithful football fan come Super Bowl time. My devotion to travel is what complicates things. Two years ago, I missed one of the most exciting matchups in Super Bowl history because I was off exploring the Egyptian Sinai. Last year, I was at the massive Kumbh Mela festival in India. Over 10 million Hindus bathed in the Ganges that day, but I couldn't find a single soul who even knew what the Super Bowl was, let alone tell me who'd won. Here in southern Thailand, the locals are almost as ambivalent as they were in India. Will you watch the Super Bowl this year? Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah. The more I ask around, the more it seems like I'm doomed to miss the big game for the third year in a row. Then I remember that my landlady has a satellite dish. Seeing this as my only hope, I march over to her house. At first she has no idea what I'm talking about, but eventually I pester her into calling the TV station. So this is what it comes down to. One Hail Mary. One long bomb on a safety blitz. One fateful phone call that will spell my destiny. Caught up in the reverie, I envision two possible futures. One where I blissfully watch Super Bowl 36 and go on to live a happy, productive life. And another, grimmer fate, where I miss the game and forever lose contact with my cultural heritage. Exiled from my own past, like Napoleon in the South Atlantic. In a moment, I know my answer. Yeah, sure. In Thailand, government TV. It will show the Super Bowl. Yeah, Super Bowl, sure. So this Sunday, as you settle into your easy chair with a plate full of buffalo wings and the remote control, I'll be sitting in the glow of my landlady's TV set on the other side of the world. By the time the teams line up for kickoff, the Monday morning sun will be rising over Thailand, and it won't matter what team I root for, because I'll have already won. This is Rolf Potts from Renong, Thailand, for the Savvy Traveler. Now, the year of that broadcast, I sat in a room in Thailand and watched the Patriots beat the Rams to establish what became a pro football dynasty that hasn't fully faded. The Patriots beat the Rams again in last year's Super Bowl, and I watched that game from a hotel room in Sri Lanka. A couple weeks before that, when I was in Sumatra, I watched the Patriots beat my favorite team, the Kansas City Chiefs, in what proved to be heartbreaking fashion in the AFC Championship game. I'd watched the Chiefs get knocked out of the playoffs by the Titans the year before when I was in Hawaii and by the Steelers the year before that when I was in Mozambique. So when the Chiefs finally won the AFC Championship this year, I resolved to use it as a lens to explore what it means to be a sports fan your whole life. Joining me in this conversation is the novelist Todd Goldberg, whose Gangsterland franchise is being developed into a TV series for Amazon. Todd, as you might recall, is my go-to when it comes to pop culture topics like this. We have in the past talked about things like the Sears Christmas Wish Book, and later this season he and I will talk about the band Jane's Addiction. Today we unpack the mystery of how we both came to love football, a sport that neither one of us played, but which both of us have followed as fans since we were little kids. As usual, our conversation is informal and covers a lot of thematic ground, from how we got attached to certain NFL teams when we were young, to how those emotional attachments still affect us as adults. We talk about how specific books guided our knowledge of the game in the days before the internet. We discover that Todd is a dead ringer for a 1940s Jewish running back who shares the same last name as him. And we speculate on whether or not I was a Super Bowl baby since I was born nine months and two days after the last time the Chiefs appeared in the big game. 
This episode is brought to you, as usual, by Airtrex, which for more than 30 years now has specialized in round-the-world and multi-stop itineraries. Seriously, Airtrex.com should be the first place you look for flight itineraries when you're planning an international vagabonding trip. And in fact, out of curiosity, I went into Airtrex and plugged in all the countries where I've watched the Super Bowl since 1997. I made an itinerary from New York to Honolulu, Korea, Thailand, India, Egypt, Namibia, Argentina, Brazil, New Orleans, and back to NYC. That's 10 flights, and not only did I find a route that averaged out to less than $400 per international flight, it also suggested that I could stop in Los Angeles and Miami on that itinerary for no extra charge. Check out those trip planning tools at airtrex.com and see how you can save money on your dream trip. But for now, please listen in as Todd Goldberg and I talk about our own football fandom in light of the Super Bowl. We start by speculating on how our conversation is going to be different than all those other pre-Super Bowl podcasts. Let's listen in. There's literally like 17,000 other people talking about the Super Bowl, but I feel like this is important, so... (laughs) (laughs) It's you and me are the only two voices that are going to matter. We're going to move the line on this. That's true. Everybody else is going to be talking about relevant shit, (laughs) whereas we're going to be talking about what it was like to shop for lunchboxes in 1976. I am totally prepared. I am. I've been waiting for this my entire life. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Did you by chance listen to that NPR piece I did? Like I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. A thousand. Like before. Before we knew each other, I heard it. Oh no! Kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I remember listening to it. Like when. Like when we met, I was like, Oh, I vaguely remember this guy's name from that Super Bowl thing. (laughs) That's funny. Did, Did. were you taken aback by how dismissive the NPR host was about the idea of the Super Bowl? I don't remember, but it seems like uh, a natural thing that the host of an NPR show would be like, well, the sports ball. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, it's, it's, uh, it was almost as if it's like, well, we know that our demographic thinks that this is beneath us. But right. here's our poor correspondent in Thailand um, who... It isn't as annoyed by it as we are. It was just really strange because it didn't occur to me, and you might have a similar backstory, it didn't occur to me that anybody would be annoyed by the Super Bowl. It's the Super Bowl. <laughs> There's, there are vast contingents that are annoyed by it. My lovely wife, who is just in the other room, vastly annoyed by it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember. And the pomp and circumstance that goes along with it. And then, you know, now, of course, there's the sort of jingoistic shit that, that gets attached to all of it as well. The, you know, that suddenly it's a celebration of the military on top of it being the football championship. You know, there's all sorts of weird shit that gets connected to it now. Yeah, yeah. So I guess a lot of people are reacting to the game as a metaphor rather right. than, than than a sporting event. And it's weird. I went back and watched the 1970 Super Bowl, which is the last time the Chiefs played, <laughs> <laughs> which which was nine months and two days before I was born. And and we'll right. get, we'll get back to that in a second. But it, it that had its own weird tenor, you know that that, that somehow. They use the they use this the phrase the silent majority and I thought oh yeah that oh, was that's the, weird that was the Vietnam era so they right. must have had some very weird assumptions but but before we get into too many specifics I'm curious to know how you got into it because like for me I don't remember not being in the NFL it feels like I was just sort of born into this ritual of watching games on Sunday and drawing pictures of little men in helmets 
Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I've, I've been spending some time thinking about it. And when I started watching was probably when I was five. So about 1976, which is when the Raiders, who are my number one team, um, actually were in the Super Bowl. Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area in Walnut Creek. And so the Raiders and the 49ers uh, obviously were there when I was a kid. But my parents were long since divorced. And um, my brother was not into sports at all. And my sisters weren't into sports at all. But I was always drawn to it. And I remember sitting on the floor in front of the TV watching Raider games and 49er games trying to figure out what it was I was watching hmm. and trying to figure out what down meant. Um, and the other thing is that I'm, I'm terrifically colorblind. So thank God back then, I think we only had a black and white television or else I never would have known <laughs> <laughs> who was on which team. Um, so I think it must've been that, you know, kids at school were talking about it. So I started to watch it because it wasn't part of um, my family. But it was also, and we talked about this, I think, on one of our previous shows together about our relationship to sports, is that, you know, I was a weird, geeky kid. And if I knew about sports, I could talk to the people that were bullying me. Hmm. Or I could, you know, I could go play catch with them out in the street or whatever it might be. And so, you know, I ended up memorizing all kinds of bizarre information about every football team and every Super Bowl. Like for a while, I knew like every starting and backup quarterback for every Super Bowl team in history. And, you know, just absurd sort of minutia of these things um, as a defense mechanism. But now, you know, I'm 49 years old and I keep saying, well, maybe I'll stop watching as much football as I did in the past because of there's, you know, like I see these kids getting blown up and I just know that they're about to have a brain injury. And I know that there, you know, there's this plantation um, style of governance of the players coming down from the ownership. Like the, the NFL is a corrupt, awful league. And yet I have the full NFL package. And every Sunday during the season, I watch about 30 games. I just, I can't stop myself. I'm addicted. Well, it's funny that like everything you, you there's a lot of problematic, uh, to use a catchphrase word, uh, aspects to the NFL. But as someone who's sort of been a, a Chiefs and Chiefs adjacent fan forever, it's like suddenly this week in history, I don't care. You know, like right. I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just so excited. And, and it's funny that you talk about, you know, the NFL as a way to talk to people, you know, because in that, in that, NPR podcast or in that NPR broadcast, you know, I was thinking as I was listening to it that, you know, travel can become a way to engage with people. You know, you can basically right. talk with anybody from anybody in the world because travel allows you to just know more about the world. But I came up, I was the same way, you know, that, that, that sports was just something that I would naturally talk about with people, especially with guys. And it was just always mm -hmm. very comfortable. And I remember being like, like 26 or something and talking to this guy, like a fellow travel writer. And he's like, yeah, I went to Colorado college. I'm like, Oh yeah, they had a West coast offense. Didn't they? And he's like, <laughs> and he's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? So like, I'd forgotten that there's, there's, there is, there are people who don't care. Right. And right. The, the fact that I would know that Colorado college had a West coast offense for its football team. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it just, it, I, I, I'm, I'm awakened every once in a while to the fact that people don't care as much as I do and always have about football. So, 
Yeah, and there's a strange intersection um, that I see on the internet of my friends. Um, you know, and at this point in my life, the vast majority of my friends have my same job, so they're writers. And, you know, most of the time, if they're tweeting or talking on Facebook about the things that are interesting to them, it's, oh, this essay I just read or this story I just read. And then suddenly during um, sports seasons, uh, you know, football season, basketball season, baseball season, you know, you know, Matthew Zapruder and I, who are good old friends, we talk more on the internet about uh, sports than we talk ever about, you know, gerunds or something. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's an interesting, different kind of shorthand um, for the friendship that we have, too. It's a weird experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's, I'm curious to know how connected to your youth this ongoing obsession with football is and like how you became emotionally attached to football when you were young because like I'm really excited that the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl but literally the last time they were there was before I was born. Right. Um they didn't that didn't preclude me from having an emotional relationship with football including a fact that I have a theory uh, sort of my is my Star Wars theory of fandom because I didn't <laughs> I didn't like the Raiders when I was young, and I didn't like right. the Steelers when I was young, but I liked the Cowboys. And so I think because I was entering football fandom at the same age that Star Wars was blowing up, like the Cowboys, the Roger Staubach, Tom Landry Cowboys were mm -hmm. my Luke Skywalker. Right. And the Steelers and the Raiders were the evil empire in my in my child mind. And right. So, so, so I, <laughs> that, I, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's of course, it's deeply tied to my childhood. I mean, I I was such a profound um, Raiders and 49ers fan when I was a kid. You, you can't find a single photo of me from my youth where I'm not wearing a T-shirt that says silver and black attack on it or uh, Montana to rice, you know, which were these T-shirts that they made. And I was just looking um, the other day after the uh, 49ers won, um, I had this been in my house filled with the front pages of the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner from Joe Montana throwing the pass over Everson Walls to Dwight Clark in the back of the end zone for the catch, mm. um, which propelled the 49ers to their first Super Bowl. Um, I have all of that stuff. I've collected all of it. Um, and, you know, it's, it, of course, you know, when you're a kid, when you can identify with a winner, it's pretty cool, right? Like no one ever thought I was a champion athlete, <laughs> but when I was in my backyard and I was Dwight Clark, you know, I was Dwight Clark. You couldn't, you couldn't stop me. I, I'm jumping over Everson walls. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's deeply connected to my memories of, of childhood. And, you know, as a, as a Raider fan too, you know, they're moving to Las Vegas next season. And, uh, you know, I've realized, well, I'm just going to not stop being a fan because really what I, it's not like I go up to Oakland anymore to see games. I basically just like their shirts, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's tied to some history that I have some emotional connection to being seven years old and being Jim Plunkett in my backyard. Um, and it's the same for the 49ers for me. Like when I see them play in Santa Clara, you know, in my mind, they're still playing at Candlestick Park. In my mind, we're still going to San Francisco the night before the Super Bowl and walking on the streets because it was just a giant party before the, the 49ers were in the Super Bowl. Like, you know, it was a street party, basically. People going crazy in, on Market Street. And so there's, you know, of course, there's nostalgia tied to all of these things. Um, 
And you know, I've I've held on to my fandom um, my entire life. Like I've never stopped being a fan of the teams that I grew up with, even though I don't live in that city anymore. And you know, that that's, says something about loyalty, but it also says something about um, you know your Star Wars idea too. Like this thing that you attached yourself to when you're six or seven or eight years old is part of your being. Well, you can't just give it up. You can't you can't just lop it off like Luke's hand. It's still going to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know if there are any teams that you grew to hate because I, I, I oh yeah, hatred seemed as strong as as loves for me. And you know, in my it was so such a simple world when I was good because I never became a strong Chiefs fan because there was nothing to root for in the 70s and 80s. But right. I was a Royals fan, and the evil empire was always the Yankees. We always lost to the Yankees in the playoffs. And then as a Cowboys fan, the enemy was always was always the Steelers. Um, mm-hmm. And and it, even, like, there was, you know, I, I grew up going to church, and there was a, a Christian comic called Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Have you heard of this? No. God. No. <laughs> Sarah Vowell actually wrote about this. The, the, the NPR commentator, Sarah Vowell, she wrote this great McSweeney's article called Tom... Landry existentialist dead at 76 or something because this this Christian comic and if you grew up in a Christian home in the 70s odds are you had this in your home where basically Tom Landry was like a successful football coach but something was missing and it was Jesus right so it's this comic book and and so (laughs) that just underscored the fact that 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 was my Luke Skywalker the rebel alliance was the Dallas Cowboys that God was on our side, and the Steelers were somehow the spawn of the devil meets the empire. So I'm curious right. to know, like, did you have teams that you really yes. didn't like? Yeah, uh, we'll we'll start with the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, I hate the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, I, I would rather any other team be in the Super Bowl <laughs> than the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, that makes you a Raiders fan. That really yes. does. Um, and I, I've got an interesting Christian Okoye story that I'll get to in just one moment. Uh, I hate the Denver Broncos. Okay. I hate the Seattle Seahawks. Hmm. And I hate the Pittsburgh Steelers. Gotcha. And it's all for, um, it's all because of their relationship to the teams that I really liked. And like you, when I was a kid, like the Dallas Cowboys, they I didn't feel one way or the other about them because they were America's team. And to root against them was to root against... Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan or whomever. Um, they just seemed like, you know, that star on the side of their helmet. Like, oh, I, I'd like to have a star on the side of my helmet. That seems cool. Uh, but the Steelers were mean and vicious and, you know, they won all the time. And they didn't, they weren't, you know, they weren't like the Yankees where it seemed like they were buying titles. They were just better and mean about it Hmm. and so i was always a little scared of like jack lambert and people like that um so i always have hated those teams the seahawks i hated for being in the afc west and then i hated for being in the nfc west um and going up against the 49ers so i've always hated those teams but so the chiefs specifically like you know i i play a lot of john madden football on my playstation 4 I have never in my life played as the Kansas City Chiefs. I would rather set myself on fire than play as the Kansas City Chiefs. That's so, such a Raiders fan sentiment. <laughs> I know. So uh, a couple years ago, I was on a plane from Vegas, um, and Christian Okoye, the great Kansas City Chiefs running back, was seated next to me. The Nigerian nightmare. The Nigerian nightmare. And I... like. 
I immediately recognized him. And then he was sitting next to me. And there was, thankfully, there was a seat between us because the dude is huge. And it was a Vegas to L.A. flight. And we're sitting there and I was just like, I got to say something. And I said, hey, man, I just got to let you know, uh, like, I loved you on Tecmo Bowl. (laughs) And he's like, you loved me on Tecmo Bowl, but not in real life. And I was like, I'm a Raider fan. He was like, oh, yeah, okay, I got (laughs) you. And then he invited me to a golf tournament. Wow. Wow. It was a weird night. That that is a really strange Christian Okoye story. Yeah, but he was very pleasant. We had this very nice conversation across the entire flight where he's like, did every white boy at age 17 own Tecmo Bowl? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) every single one of us. And you could rush Christian Okoye for 800 yards a game. It was like Christian Okoye and Bo Jackson. Those are your two. And you were set. And he was like, Everywhere I go, I meet someone who looks just like you, who's like, I loved you in Tecmo Bowl. <laughs> this feels like it could be like a literary anthology if we can get like um, him to write about being in Tecmo Bowl and Natalie Portman to write about having action figures made of her that, uh, that also young men play with. You know, that, <laughs> that, 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 there's got to be this weird level at which certain members of our society are made into what are essentially toys that bring right. much delight to people in a way that's very weird. Yeah, I, I had that feeling from from Mr. Okoye, like that he was just fascinated by this. Like, I mean, the dude only played like six years, right? But he lives on in my mind as the, the greatest running back in the history of the NFL. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm curious to know how you know besides video games, you interacted with your NFL fandom back in the day because you and I talked about the Sears catalog in another podcast, right. and it felt like that Sears catalog was really working hand in hand with 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 the NFL. They had way more NFL stuff than Major League Baseball stuff. Right. I remember getting Nerfs and like agonizing over what color of Nerf football to buy. Same. Same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so do you remember any, like, one, what kind of games and products do you remember from when you were young? And two, where did you get your information about the NFL? Because in my world, it was a real, the NFL is on is is on TV on Sunday. You watch the halftime show to find out what the other teams are doing. You watch the evening news, and then you wait a week to get more information. Right. Well, I, I had a lucky benefit in that my mom was a newspaper columnist, and she, um, her desk was right next to the sports desk at the Contra Costa Times. And the Contra Costa Times, so this is in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Contra Costa is in the East Bay. Um, and her two closest friends at the newspaper at the time were these two sports writers. One was named Charlie Zeno, and the other's name was Chuck Drysdale. God, I haven't thought about that guy in 40 years. Huh. And those two guys gave me all the swag I could ever want in my entire life. And I got to go to a lot of Raiders and 49ers games when I was a kid also because my mom was in the press. And so she would get press tickets to go see games and stuff. Um, And my mom was also dating periodically different members of both the Raiders and the 49ers when I was a kid. Um, For a while, she dated this ex-punter from the Raiders um, (laughs) whose name I can't remember. He was Not Ray um, Guy. No, no, he was the Raiders punter before Ray Guy. Uh-huh. Oh, um, uh, Mercer. His last name was Mercer. Huh. Mike Mercer. Oh, 
God, it all came back to me. <laughs> this guy named Mike Mercer, uh-huh. who was a place kicker and punter for the Raiders right before they drafted Ray Guy. But also, like, you know, I had all the handheld games. Um, and I would always imagine I was on the Raiders, you know, or the 49ers playing these little handheld Coleco games or whatever they were. And I feel like, too, that they sometimes were branded. Like, you'd buy the box and say 49ers on it. But then you'd open it up and it would just be, you know, whatever blase game it might be. Hmm. Um, I had all the the playing cards or the trading cards, of course. Um, and then, like, you know, the... I would. I had um, a dice game that I sort of made up for football. Like I had all kinds of stuff. It, you know, it, it actually sort of speaks to my general obsessiveness uh, specifically. Where like I get into something and I was like I I knew everything about all of the players through history. I just got super obsessive. Like if someone said, "Oh, are you a Raider fan?" I became a Raider fan. 1961 they played four games at Keysar Stadium like no one cares <laughs> no one no one needs to know that <laughs> yeah I remember I came, when I was living overseas I was in Korea and I was talking to my friends and their girlfriends about like quarterbacks of the 1970s you know I'm right. comparing Joe Theismann to Fran Tarkington and people again it was that it was like talking about the West Coast offense at Colorado College people are just like what the fuck is wrong with you, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah no one cares <laughs> But it, but it's funny how you your obsession was channeled through your mom because mine was also in a way because my mom was a, she was a school teacher but she was also like a farm girl who grew up with one pair of shoes a year and uh, and so it was just an extravagance like there there was no going three hours up the road to Kansas City and I think in uh, you know ten years of being an obsessive NFL fan I got one NFL lunchbox which I loved. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it have the AFC on one side and the NFC on the other, and it might be the episode art for this for this episode. <laughs> but but I just remember I just remember how um, information could be hard to come by. I mean, young right. NFL fans, it must be easy for them now. I had a book by Jerry Eisenberg. I'm actually holding in my hands now called Championship: The NFL Title Games that goes back to 1933. Oh my gosh. And this, I, I had forgotten until I revisited how much of my information about the game of football was informed by this book. So, like, I knew that, like, people used leather helmets in the 1930s. Right. You know? I knew who, um, you know, I knew who Lou Graza was. Do you? Have right. You ever... I remember him too. Yeah. The he he's the the punting award is named for him. Yeah, he was a <laughs> he was a kicker and an offensive lineman. Right. right. And oh, I've got another important thing, but go ahead. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> well, I have an, well, one thing that I that I noticed when rereading this book is that it mentions Marshall Goldberg. Oh my! <laughs> have, have you heard of Marshall Goldberg? Well, only in the sense that I'm sure I have a cousin named Marshall Goldberg. <laughs> I, you know what I forgot though, Rolf, is that my mom married an ex NFL player. What? I forgot about that. <laughs> what? How, how does that happen? I, they were only married for six months. I totally forgot that my mom was married to an ex NFL player. His name was Don Curran, mm-hmm. and he was uh, he'd gone to Cal and was a linebacker at Cal mm-hmm. uh, of some renown in the nineteen early nineteen fifties. He was drafted by the Chicago Cardinals before they moved to St. Louis. Uh-huh. And he spent two years on the Chicago Cardinals on their taxi squad. Never played. 
Um, and then he got a concussion in a car accident and uh, never went back to play football, went and got his law degree, and uh, 20 years later married my mom. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'd think I would have remembered the salient detail that my mom was married to a guy who played in the NFL. <laughs> the, the, the most amazing detail is that his concussion was not from the NFL. It was from a car accident. Yeah, well, he surely had concussions then, too, because he played in the period... Um, well, I guess they had face masks, but it's not like they were padded, you know? <laughs> well, well, this is actually something I... Well, one, I just texted you a picture. Do you have your phone nearby? Yes, I do. Let me look at this. I can't yeah. wait. Oh, gosh. Yeah, look at that. That guy looks like me. I could be Marshall Goldberg. <laughs> That's Marshall Goldberg. He was actually a star player for the um, for the Chicago Cardinals back in the day. Wow, and and he's like he's, he's like and, and actually this is an interesting detail. I'm not sure if Jerry Eisenberg, who wrote this book, was himself Jewish, but he like a lot of ink was given to like Sid Luckman and right. and to like Benny Friedman, who were these these great uh, Jewish football players back in the day. Um, but then I'd never I had not remembered Marshall Goldberg. But look at this guy, you know? Yeah, you know the thing is, I look like Marshall Goldberg. You do. <laughs> I might have to put this in the show notes just so people I, can understand how Marshall Goldbergy you look. Yeah, I mean, I look the one in the helmet like that could be me wearing an old school helmet. <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna text this photo to my wife right now and see if she recognizes me. <laughs> I, I cannot believe that you did not otherwise know about Marshall Goldberg because it, it could be it's that shocking. <laughs> but I'd forgotten about my stepfather too. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. That's true. I, I think the fact that your mom was such a colorful person um, may have, like, I was just shivering on the plains reading this book by uh, Jerry Eisenberg about players of the 1930s through the 1960s. You know, right? That, that basically it covered the NFL from 1933 through 1969. So as far as that stat nerd aspect of fandom, for a little kid, I knew a lot about the. NFL during like the pre-war and post-war era. Yeah. It's really strange. So did I, because you know, um the the library at my elementary school was filled with like, you know, the story of, of Red Grange, you know. So like I, I know all this stuff about the galloping ghost and about, you know, the American Association Football League's transference into the NFL. Like for some reason they just had this huge row of books at my at the actual school library about the history of professional football. Um, and so I just knew all this, you know, like I know all about Ray Nitschke and, you know, Paul Hornung and, you know, like all these older players that I shouldn't have any sense about. But when I was a kid, I read a ton of sports biographies. Um, and so I would just take anything off the shelf and read them. Um, and, you know, a lot of these things are just sort of, you know, dashed off in probably like two weeks or something. But I also every year um, from about age eight or nine on would get that big book that was the pro football index that had everyone's stats and bios from the previous season in it. Oh, and then yeah. all the historical records. Remember that thing? It was like a big paperback book. Um, and I would just go through and and, you know, memorize information about like, you know, Chuck Long or whatever, you know, like, I don't need to know about Chuck Long, but I know all of his stats inexplicably. 
Yeah, you know, um, I did not. I had one book. I didn't have the annual book, so I had this like my little Bible of football was this by then outdated book, but I just liked it because it had some information uh, about it. And it talked about like the 1934 uh, NFL championship when the the Giants beat the Bears because they went to Manhattan College and got some basketball shoes because the field was too icy, right? Right. And then the old days there were. There were coaches named Greasy Neal and players called <laughs> like Buzz Nutter and Bronco Nagurski and Crazy right. Legs Hirsch. And it just seemed it seemed actually it wasn't like the Bible. It was like it was like Homer's uh Iliad or something. You know, it was mm-hmm. it basically was about this ancient time, which though when you think about like the nineteen forty NFL championship when the Bears beat the Giants seventy three to nothing. That was like basically 35 years before I discovered football when I was about right. four or five years old. Whereas now, like 35 years ago, what that's like the, the Chicago Super Bowl shuffle, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the fridge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like in historical terms, these, these Greek heroes that I was looking back on who wore leather helmets and played with broken noses and were called crazy legs um, – mm-hmm. It, it wasn't that long ago, and it, and it really goes to show that like it's the NFL is this real corporatized venture now. But there was a right. time when it was it was really trying. I mean, there was a time when when there were teams like you know there were, there were teams from Akron and Canton and and right. and and, uh, and so like within our lifetime, the team has the the NFL has become super professionalized you know that we no longer have the canton bulldogs playing the rock island independence in nfl game <laughs> you know right <laughs> and, and so i feel like that that history that i studied as a kid nobody studies anymore basically year one of football is super bowl one and even that right. seems super old uh, what, what do you think yeah i i agree with you because you know i always get thrown off when they talk about um the you know the first Super Bowl champion being the Green Bay Packers, the first NFL champion. And I was like, but there was there was literally fifty years of history before that because this is the this is the hundredth year anniversary of the NFL, right? Twenty twenty yeah. is, yeah. Um, and so like I have all this obscure information about these teams that played in the fifties too, or the or early sixties or pre AFL, all that stuff. Um, but you know, it's basically just like saying, get off my lawn, (laughs) you know, like no, no one, no 19 year old cares about Bill Haley and the Comets, you know, when they're, when they're buying their new Lizzo, uh, download. Um, and when you think about it too, like the history of a sport, um, is only matters to someone, um, as it relates to their own team, I think. So that they don't really care about the, you know, the mm. Rochester Lancers or whatever. That was actually not a football team. That was a North American Soccer League team. But that's another story. <laughs> another <laughs> um, podcast, ladies and gentlemen. That's another podcast. So I, I suspect if you're a, a New England Patriots fan or something, like, you know an awful lot about the New England Patriots even before Tom Brady. If you're of a certain ilk, like if you're just 20 years old, maybe you don't care about Steve Grogan's really weird neck roll. Like maybe that doesn't, you know, that doesn't interest you. <laughs> or well, I, that they once had a, a a running back named Vegas Ferguson. Maybe they don't care about that. <laughs> but I do. Right. Well, well, if Grogan went to Kansas State, you know, I know all this stuff. You know, we're, we're, we're of, there could probably be a convention. Like we're Star Trek nerds of the NFL of a certain generation, right? Right. That there's probably guys who are our exact same age who know exactly about Steve Grogan's neck roll because it was important to them. 
<laughs> Poor Steve Grogan. He's been forgotten in the hit over time. <laughs> uh, Tom Brady has has definitely snuffed him out, but yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny that I think because the Chiefs were never good, I, I was never allowed to love them so much that I had a very pure NFL fandom. You know, like right. like I actually I was an eight year old with with the, with the real sense that the Dayton Triangles used to play the Decatur Staleys in in <laughs> NFL games, right? And so I I think so when I did my NPR piece as a full grown adult, I was just it shocked me that NPR people would look down their nose at the NFL for because for me, you know, it had its own Iliad, it had its own backstory. Right. It had its own heroes, you know, it had, you know, like Ed Tall Jones was this guy in my mind who lived in the clouds and threw lightning bolts. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so yeah, I think that that's one reason why my emotional relationship still remains is that it just captured my imagination. Yeah. And part of it for me too, is knowing that I was never going to do anything like those guys, you know, yeah. <laughs> like there's, I knew even at seven years old, like, well, I'm not going to play professional sports. <laughs> and then at age 40 something, when I took my DNA test and it was like, you're never going to be an athlete. I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I figured that out. <laughs> but, but what about Marshall Goldberg? <laughs> Marshall Goldberg. My doppelganger. Was born of a different stock. I am really fascinated by this. I sent the photo to my wife and she said, that's off putting. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm going to look up Marshall Goldberg and see if uh, if we're related in any in any way. Well, I look other forward than the to the Ashkenazi way. I look forward to your eventual um your eventual essay about um, <laughs> what Marshall Goldberg means to you. So I I will write that, believe you me. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, he was a Chicago Cardinal. I mean, this is another thing. Like, I I just happened to know when I was a kid that the Cardinals were called the Cardinals because they got their uniforms from the University of Chicago, but they were faded, and so that they were not maroon like the maroons, but they were they were red, so they're called. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, and then the, the Packers, just like India Packing Company in Green Bay, just decided to give them a pair of socks and jerseys one year, so they became the mm-hmm. Packers, right? So. Right. So there's this pre there's this corporatized game that we know now that has all of these controversies, but there's this really goofy prehistory that I really threw myself into when I was a kid, and it encompasses both of our teams this year. the The 49ers came out of the All America Conference. Um, did you have you studied much about the All America Football Conference, the the old competing league? Yeah, you know, I know a little bit about it from reading all of those old books. So I know a bit about like from the 1940s on to like 52 or whatever it was, you know, just a little bit that I is barely in the back of my mind still. Yeah, yeah. When I years ago, when I was traveling on my first vagabonding trip across the United States, I I stayed with my friends aunt and uncle and the uncle's name was dick renfro and he played on that first team oh and he showed me his little leather silver and red 49ers uh helmet from 1946 it was pretty amazing um and so in in a sense the 49ers are uh, uh, this old expansion team from 1946 from when from this old league that also gave us the browns and mm-hmm. the colts 
And then, then the Chiefs are from this old league that, you know, that also gave us the, the Broncos and the Patriots and, and the Raiders, actually. And, and, and so the 49ers were like, it was them and like the uh, the L.A. Dons, right? Is that yeah. my memory? Okay. Yeah. Woo, Goldberg pulling things out of the back of his head. <laughs> well, and wow. Then, and then they, myself. <laughs> good job, the L.A. Dons. I don't even know what that means. Does that mean like they're like the gangsters or something? I don't, I'm not sure. I, I think so. Yeah, I've seen their logo before because I had a T-shirt um, that I bought somewhere online. It's just like a a jaunty guy with a hat, right? Right. <laughs> and they they couldn't just call them the L.A. jaunty guys with hats. So they, <laughs> like, the uh, the L.A. foppish dandies. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny how you know now the the Forty Nine ers are an iconic team, and and so are the Raiders. I mean, those are just iconic, iconic teams. Mm-hmm. Um. But like when they when that league was folded in the NFL, the Browns, which were a part of that league, came in and just dominated. Like if you look at the NFL history of the fifties, it's all Browns right. and Lions. And right. what one thing do we know about the Browns and Lions in the modern age of the Super Bowl? They haven't played and they're terrible. <laughs> exactly. Those two teams have never made it. Those two teams that dominated football in the fifties have never made it to the Super Bowl. So it's funny how narrative this becomes and how it's how easy it is to forget uh, its own history, which right. I, which I guess is is a good pretext to transition into the fact that the Chiefs have finally become Super Bowl good, you know, <laughs> like, and you know it's interesting that these teams that um, that don't ever play in the, in the championship game or there's fifty years in between that they keep this rabid fan base is a little surprising, you know. I, I mean, I guess the the corollary would be the Chicago Cubs, right? Yeah. You know, it took them a hundred years to get back to the World Series, or the Red Sox, for that matter. Um, but I mean, it's been it's been fifty years since the Chiefs have been in the Super Bowl, but every single weekend they sell out that stadium. And, and in fact, I remember I had a friend from England visit Kansas in two thousand five. I took her to a Royals game in May. Now, in 2005, the Kansas City Royals baseball team was terrible. Right. Um, I went to, and there was like 20 Chiefs fans tailgating at a, a Royals game in May. <laughs> That's no joke. That that they were just they were just there because they were excited about the season that was what months away, right? Right. And and so that has it's weird that I sort of have this Star Wars fandom, you know, that basically I loved the Cowboys and I hated. The Steelers in the seventies because I loved the Royals and hated the Yankees just like I loved Luke Skywalker and hated Darth Vader. Right. And and and, and so my Chiefs fandom was very abstracted. Yet I grew up with this understanding that the Chiefs had won the Super Bowl the year I was born. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and and literally nine months, like technically I should be a Super Bowl baby because I was born nine months. <laughs> And, and two days after, I don't Super want to Bowl think four. about that. I don't want to think about your dad and mom consummating at, at the at the end of the fourth quarter. Well, I I, I went through an experiment because how do you ask how do you ask your parents you know uh, when exactly or how exactly uh, you were conceived? Right? You don't. You don't. <laughs> you don't. So, so after the right before the AFC Championship, I I, I invited them to my house. They live near me uh, when when I'm in Kansas. They live nearby me, and so I watched the YouTube restored version of Super Bowl Four, and they watched it as if it was just another game, you know. 
And I kept trying to prod them into like revealing that maybe there was some sort of victory thing that led to the existence of me. And they, they had no, they didn't catch a hint that they were just sort of, they were interested in this old YouTube game, but were not at all, um, you know, you know, I I don't think I was a Super Bowl baby. I think it was a complete accident. Right. (laughs) At no point did your dad raise an eyebrow at your mom and they (laughs) went went off to the guest room for seven minutes. That didn't happen. (laughs) Exactly. Hank, Hank Stram and Lou Dawson had nothing to do with my conception. (laughs) Jesus. God. (laughs) But I grew up like I didn't figure it was years before I figured out that timing. And it turns out I'm pretty sure that I'm not a Super Bowl. I, I think my parents just didn't care that much. Right. But I grew up with this sense. Did you grow up with a sense? Like this is an old staple of NFL films. The the uh, like the sixty five toss power trap. Do you know anything about this, or do you hate? I do. Blaster, tell him sixty five toss power trap. Get in there for sixty five toss power trap. Let's block. Let's Come on, go. Let's, let's get seven points. points. Come on, let's go. Sixty five toss power trap. That might pop wide open, rats. The mentor. 65 toss power trap. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, that maybe it's there. Yes, sir, boys. So the Super Bowl, just again to frame things historically about how much the Super Bowl has changed, that the halftime show involved a battle reenactment (laughs) of of the Battle of New Orleans, that literally there were guys on muskets at Tulane Stadium shooting clouds of, of smoke at each other. At a Super Bowl, and there was a marching band, and there was a uh, um, oh a hot air balloon before the game that had like oh, the, the Vikings mascot. Mm-hmm. The Vikings mascot had a marionette, like a a ventriloquist <laughs> puppet. <laughs> this is how goofy the NFL was back in 1970. And he actually he took off in the balloon, and it crashed into a bunch of like Louisiana debutants. It was the weirdest. <laughs> rewatching the 1970 Super Bowl was bizarre because, and they're here. Well. Okay, as the as the balloon crashes into the stands, let's talk about our sponsor, Marlboro <laughs> and Muriel Cigars. So, do you do you have any do you have any impression? I know you hate the Chiefs, but what what stands out in your memory about the nineteen seventy uh, Super Bowl ty- triumph? <laughs> well, uh, not a lot because I was not yet born either. Um, I was born one year to the day of uh, the triumph of the Chiefs over the Vikings, 23 to 7. I was born January 10th, 1971. Um, You know, all I really remember are the great photos of, like, Len Dawson smoking a cigarette on the (laughs) sidelines. Right. right. (laughs) And, you know, being a little bit obsessed with um, the Vikings as being the great losers over and over again in the early years, because they kept going to the Super Bowl and kept losing. Um, but the thing, too, about that Super Bowl is that Joe Cap was the quarterback for the Vikings. And growing up in the Bay Area, Joe Cap was a huge hero um, because he was a Bay Area guy. And um, he coached uh, Cal for a few years, if memory uh, serves me correct, because he'd gone to Cal. Uh-huh. Um, and he'd grown up in um, in Southern California. But he was like he was if there was a a new car dealership being opened, Joe Cap was there cutting the ribbon. Um, He's one so, of the original Hispanic players, too. His mom was yeah. Mexican. And then uh, a few years ago, he legendarily got into a fight at a CFL old-timers uh, <laughs> dinner. If you've, had, if you've never seen that video, Rolf, I encourage you to go find Joe Cap beating up a man 
who's in a walker <laughs> at the CFL old timers event. So he's like the Buzz Aldrin of, yeah. of, of the NFL. I'm I'm gonna have to embed that in the show notes. Thank you, Todd. Oh God, you gotta see it. Like he and this old man who literally is standing there with a cane get into a fist fight, <laughs> and the guy with the cane hits Joe Cap, and Joe Cap is just swinging on him. It's crazy. One footnote to set to the 1970 Super Bowl that I didn't realize that happened that's just sort of an interesting historical footnote is that they had a guy, a scout named Lloyd Wells, mm-hmm. who went to the historically black colleges. And so if you look at the stars of that team, besides Lenny Dawson, um, it's like Otis Taylor went to Prairie View A&M and, and oh. Frank Pitts with the Southern. Oh, Willie Lanier went to Morgan State and Buck Buchanan went to Grambling. I didn't realize that there's that famous game where USC played Alabama, that they, mm-hmm. t- they took a team with an all-black backfield and just destroyed right. the, the Crimson Tide. That happened nine months after the Super Bowl that year. So, Oh, wow. Basically, huh. the Chiefs were sort of pioneering in, in saying, look, if we go to Alabama, we, go, we won't get the best players because they don't necessarily have the best players because they're not recruiting black players. So the genius of that Super Bowl, I didn't realize that until I was researching this podcast, is this guy Lloyd Wells, who, the, who Hank Stram said, yeah, just go find me the best players you can find. And Lloyd Wells thought, well, I'm going to go to the historically black colleges. And that's why these, these you know, the Otis Taylors and the uh, Willie Lanier's, they weren't playing at, at Ohio State and, 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 uh, and Alabama because they were playing at historically black colleges. So that's a funny, fun detail. Interesting. In my, in my memory, I sort of see... I sort of have a youth memory era of football that sort of goes to the to maybe the '85 Bears, um, and, and maybe sort of some into some of those Joe Montana uh, uh, Super Bowl teams in the late '80s, and then I have this it, almost when I became adult, things shifted, and then I started living overseas and traveling, and I have a very different. It's almost like my my fandom became a part of my Americanness that I, mm-hmm. I felt. I felt obligated, and, and I haven't missed a Super Bowl. I, I, I have had some Super Bowls that I haven't literally watched because I was like in India, and I had to go to an internet cafe and go to ESPN.com <laughs> and, and hit ref, refresh, you know? Right. And the Indian people around me are like, oh, the Baltimore Ravens, you know? Is, <laughs> is that an Edgar Allan Poe reference? And it's like, how do you know that? Yes, it's an Edgar Allan Poe reference. Um the only literary reference in an NFL team is is the Baltimore Ravens. No, no, you don't see the uh, the San Francisco Steinbecks or anything. <laughs> right, right. The the the, um, the the San Francisco Starfish or, or the... <laughs> the Los Angeles uh, the Los Angeles River. I don't know <laughs> the, the, the Los Angeles Chandler corpses or something. <laughs> Um, the Los Angeles Lebowski's that that could be a separate exercise is is like well, certainly that's been done if that hasn't been done Todd you need to do that like the literary mascot for every team in America right I will do that I have some time I will do that I, I'm curious to know about your adult fandoms and how that's changed like how your Raiders fandom has gone up against your 49ers fandom mm-hmm. um, because you know I the Chiefs finally got good in the 90s but they got good. They just got just good enough to lose their first playoff game and break my heart. You know, like, right? There's there's a famous uh, 1995 playoff game where they were like they they were 13 and three. They were the number one seed in the AFC, and they lost to the Colts 10 to seven because Lynn Elliott missed three field goals like uh, closer than 40 <laughs> yards, right? And so I have these very specific heartbreaks that are tied into sort of this rejuvenated uh, Chiefs fandom. So that like when Mahomes, did you watch the game uh, last week? Of course, week? yeah. So when Mahomes made that break and like that, that amazing touchdown he ran for, 
Like I was as a Chiefs fan, I just wanted him to run out of bounds, you know, because by <laughs> by Chiefs standards, that's a triumph, you know. That, that like under under Andy Reid, uh, you know, Alex Smith cho- coached the game. They had a twenty eight point lead against Andrew Luck and the Colts, you know, seven years ago, and somehow they managed to lose that game. So I, I've had to reinvent my Chiefs fandom. But I'm curious, since the 49ers are in the Super Bowl as well, how that has developed over the years and how as an adult you have been a fan as opposed to as a kid. Well, and you know, you're you're sort of doubly screwed here with this game because all of your recent um, Chiefs disappointments have actually been tied to the 49ers because every decent 49er quarterback has become a Chiefs quarterback. Yeah. You've got Steve Bono, you got Joe Montana, Ovis Gerback, Alex Smith, is there is there another one? Did, did did Garcia ever suit up for the Chiefs? No, Gar- Garcia didn't. But I swear there's one. Other. Did Trent Green play for the no Niners? Um, Dave Craig, Steve Fuller. No. Oh, well, Steve Fuller played for the Chiefs, but not when they were good. Right. So so this is yeah. No, that's a thing that I think this is the Todd Blackledge cult curse. That basically. <laughs> But in 83, the, the, the Chiefs could have drafted Dan Marino or Jim Kelly, and they drafted Todd Blackledge. Right. And, and like for the next 25 years, they just they got a bunch of old quarterbacks that were decent from the 49ers and, and similar teams, right? Right. And, and so this is a weird bit of minutia. The Chiefs have had three quarterbacks start an AFC championship. Len Dawson, Patrick Mahomes, and one other. Can you guess who that was? Uh, Rich Gannon. No, good guess, but um, Rich Gannon is probably the fifth person I was thinking about. But uh, Joe Montana, Joe Mon. Oh, so right, right, yeah. That's how like the the Chiefs have had oftentimes one of the best teams in football, and then they'll lose to the Colts or like the Dolphins in in the divisional round, and then that's it, you know. And so it was just emotionally hard. I could never fully be uh, a Chiefs fan emotionally, like say I've been a Royals fan, because it was just a guaranteed heartbreak. But really, I think that. In a way, it, it, I'm going to have to reinvent my fandom now that Mahomes is this superstar drafted quarterback because I'm basically you. You got the sense that when like Alex Smith or Steve Bono showed up, the other team was never worried. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like like basically when the when when Andrew Luck and the Colts were down 38 to 10 in that 2013 playoff game, they thought, oh, we, we got this, right? Um, and, and so it just feels like Mahomes, uh, fingers crossed, isn't going to blow a game like all of these uh, cast-off Raiders and 49ers quarterbacks have. To your original question before we went down this sad path of the all-time <laughs> horrible Chiefs quarterbacks, God, this list is really just a terrible – Tyler Palco, good Lord. Um, Kyle Orton, oh, my God. Yeah. So – you know, of course, your fandom waxes and wanes, I think, a little bit as as your attention does. Um, but, you know, as a kid, I was lucky because the Raiders and the 49ers would sort of alternate between being good or bad at any given time. And then the Raiders moved to L.A. And living in the Bay Area at the time, it was easy just to, to spend most of my time thinking about the 49ers, who were great for, you know, 15 straight years. Yeah. Um, you know, my uh, attention's moved more directly towards the Raiders in the 2000s. Um, I think I spent more time because you, you suddenly you're an adult, you have to pay taxes. Uh, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't follow every fantasy movement of every single team. So, you know, I think I, I threw my lot in more directly with, uh, with the Raiders, but then 
mid 2000s when Kaepernick was on the team. I really liked him. You know, he was an exciting player. Uh, and then, of course, they went to the Super Bowl that year. In gosh, what year was that? Was that? I think it 13? was. I think it is the year that the lights in the Superdome went out. Yeah, and they were playing Flacco and the and the Ravens. Yeah, um, what year was that? Let's see. That was, yeah, 2013, um, where they lost 34 to 31. Um, and like I was, I was super excited about that. That was that was a great season. You know, I, I think uh, my identif- my identification with particular teams, I've always been an East Bay person. I grew up in the East Bay. And so I've always been an Oakland A's, Oakland Raiders, Golden State Warriors fan more than the San Francisco team. So San Francisco has always been, you know, my 1A. Um, but this year, you know, it was easy to, to follow both of them because both of them were pretty good. The Raiders were actually pretty good this year. But the 49ers were so dominant that it was fun to watch them. You know, it's fun to watch that defense play. It's fun to watch Nick Bosa run around and hit people. And because I look so much like Jimmy Garoppolo, it's a little off-putting for some (laughs) people when they see me. They think I'm him. Um, But, you know, it was a fun team to watch. There's big personalities. It's neat to, you know, see Richard Sherman play and and play at a high level again. Um, But, you know, nothing matches how you feel when you're 10 or 11 about some team, you know, you finally have something that you identify yourself with, and that's important to you. I don't, I don't identify myself with a sports team anymore. Um, it, so it's sort of like you know that line from Stand by Me, like you're never as close to your best friends as you are when you're 12 or whatever. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that for for fandom. It's like your it's your first love story is that team that breaks your heart. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm going to watch the Super Bowl and cheer for the Chiefs in my in the own, my own complicated way that I've come to love the Chiefs over the years. But it's going to be different than watching the Royals in the World Series mm-hmm. in recent years because, like, my childhood emotional relationship was so close to that because they were good in the George Brett years of the 70s. Right. And so I, I was able to just transpose that perfectly into my adulthood, whereas now, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't born yet when— um, when the Chiefs last won the Super Bowl. As, as a quick aside, you know, we exchanged text messages. Like the greatest sports moment of my life is, to, is going with my dad to the 2014 wildcard game. This is a baseball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't text you to talk smack after that because the Royals, <laughs> the Royals beat, the, beat the A's because I knew that I wouldn't have wanted you to text me to talk no, smack afterwards. That was a very upsetting game. I can still see John Lester blowing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and again, this isn't a baseball podcast, but I was, oh. I was thinking about that, that, that basically God. I knew that my joy would be inverse to your sorrow, and I couldn't, I couldn't rub it in. Like somehow I understood my own fandom so much that if you had a twinge of – of emotional attachment to my stakes in that game that I couldn't just rub that in because that would be devastating to see that happen. So. Yeah, but plenty of my friends did, so <laughs> don't worry. Like, hey, Todd, cool to see your A's lose again. Best right. wishes. <laughs> right. right. These are all guys I went to college with who have the emotional wherewithal of a chimpanzee. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that, that might go into this childhood thing. There's, a, there's an open-heartedness that you have when you're a kid that you don't when you're 20, right? Right. <laughs> um, and then and then you have sort of a mix of everything as an adult. And so I was an open-hearted Royals fan in 2014, 2015. I'm a, I'm a strong Chiefs fan in 2020, but not in a way that compares. You know, I will right. be 
I will be interested in the game. I'll be I'll, I'll I'll always be vested in the Chiefs, but it won't tug at my heart like the Royals did simply because of the way they were when I was a little kid. So right. so what about you? What's your emotional stake in this game? My emotional stake is I hate the Chiefs and so okay. I want them to lose. Okay. But the corollary though is I'm a huge fan of Mahomes. Hmm. Like I love to watch Mahomes play. There's I've never seen a quarterback who could throw the ball like Patrick Mahomes. And so as the old saying goes, you know, <laughs> I I hate the game, but I, I love the player. <laughs> right. What do you think of Andy Reid? Because one one thing, and I, I tried to research before this interview, and there are more man hours of NFL podcasts and YouTube videos than I have hours left in my life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that it's, that it's, that there's so much talk around the NFL, but people love Mahomes, even if they don't mm-hmm. like the Chiefs, and people really seem to respect Andy Reid. Yeah, and you know, Andy Reid was a, a 49er coach during their um, their halcyon years as well. Um, mm-hmm. He was the quarterback coach for I want to say for for Steve Young. Is that right? Um, I, I don't remember. No, I, I might be on crack about that, or maybe I'm thinking of Mike Holmgren. Um, but yeah, I, I got I got no beef with Andy Reid, and he seems like a, a an interesting and uh, innovative NFL mind. Um, I recently, this is going to sound weird, knowing everything about me that you might know. I recently watched an episode of Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives <laughs> that he was on, okay. <laughs> where he and Guy Fieri went around Kansas City eating food together, and he seemed perfectly pleasant eating. Uh, uh, barbecue, barbecue with yeah. <laughs> Guy Fieri. Uh, Andy Reid did not coach the 49ers. He coached at the Packers. He was the oh, offensive okay. assistant there uh, and quarterback coach. Um, so, like, yeah, I got, I have no personal beef with them. But And, you know, the thing about watching Mahomes play, when they were down 28 to whatever it was, I was like, they're going to drop 50 today. It doesn't matter if they're down 28. And so... As a 49er fan, I would like them to win this game, but I think there's a high probability that Patrick Mahomes throws for 485 yards and seven touchdowns. Like, he might just turn it on like that. And that would be fun to watch. Like, you know, that would be some history. And part of me is like, Andy Reid, he would like to win a title. He never has won a title. It would be pretty cool if he won. Like, that's a nice story. It would be better emotionally for me if the 49ers won. It'd be nice for Jimmy Garoppolo to to finally have some success and something in his life other than all the titles he won in New England and his beautiful good looks and <laughs> the porn stars that he dates and all that. Um, <laughs> like, finally, something good happens for Jimmy G. Uh, so I, I, I'm mostly just hoping for a good game. I want them both to do well. <laughs> But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't actually be terribly upset if the Chiefs won because I think it would be good for the NFL for Patrick Mahomes to win the Super Bowl. If if the if the 49ers did win, um would you feel emotionally similar to like eighty one season or the ninety four season? Or- no, God no. Eighty one was remarkable. You you gotta you gotta put this in context. Like after the 49ers won, um when they beat the Bengals in that Super Bowl, for a month at at Castle Rock Elementary, you only wore red and gold every single day. Right. Like, it was a thing. Like, every single day you wore red and gold to school. And every day on the blacktop, 
you were Joe Montana throwing the ball to, to Dwight Clark. You were Earl Cooper. You know, you were like, that was it. Every kid in the world in the Bay Area was wearing red and gold and we're the San Francisco 49ers. Um, after the Super Bowl, what I'll probably do is um, change the channel and not think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't invest too much emotional stock into it except during the game. And really I reserve my profound emotions for, for baseball. Like the, when the Oakland A's are in the playoffs, I'm a wreck. I'm an absolute wreck. And I think it might have something to do with the length of the season. Like you're following a baseball team for 162 games. Like that's, that's a significant portion of the year where you're paying attention every day to a thing. And then there's that chance that they might win that thing. And all of a sudden, all the, all the watching, all the reading, all the paying attention and listening to the, the talk shows and everything, it plays a bigger role. It's just like, oh, if I miss a game, oh, it's all right. I missed one game. There'll be another one. They play 16 weeks. Um, but I, I don't have that same, um, that same pout around the house where 37 good luck charms for football that I do for baseball. Uh, I'm the same way. And, and it's interesting that even though I have a very strong invested NFL fandom, which is why I'm having this conversation with you right now, <laughs> it feels like even having this conversation, it, it's like a long time coming. I almost called you from Sri Lanka last year if the Chiefs would have made it, if D Ford had not lined up <laughs> offsides. Yeah, um, God. <laughs> I, I would have called you a year ago from Sri Lanka. So in a way, yeah, th my emotional fandom is stronger in baseball, but it's strong enough in football that this conversation felt important. And Todd, I'm, um, thank you for having it with me. Of course. I am always happy to discuss the geekier natures of our lives, Rolf. <laughs> this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including photo evidence that novelist Todd Goldberg looks exactly like 1940s-era Chicago Cardinal running back Marshall Goldberg, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm -hmm.